0: This week on The Futurist.
1: My passion for 3D and real-time 3D as a media type across the board is what fuels all of this, including the uh, applications, modalities, all the experiences that we're going to see in a shared metaverse where we're together, present together, potentially in a solitary experience interacting with things if you're doing training, for example, in a virtual reality headset, but more often than not doing something collaboratively and in real-time synchronously together at the same time and this is the potential of this technology
0: welcome back to the futurist myself and rob tershek hi rob hi yeah we're going to get into the metaverse today which is is going to be tremendously exciting um to, to do that we are inviting on the show. Um, a good friend of, uh, Rob's, um, a connection of, of mine. Um, he's a metaverse og old guy goes way back uh started uh, as an entrepreneur and investor in the space uh, you know he's he's the co-creator of the vrml uh, protocol and uh, gitf uh, head of uh, uh xr um and um you know the e-commerce space unity previously um he, he's an author in the the, he calls it the pre-apocalyptic space. He's also a musician, and uh, he's just joined LAMINA One, which is a metaverse uh, virtual world startup. With, of course, none other than Neil Stevenson, who we hope to have on the show in the coming weeks. Tony Parisi, welcome to the Futurists.
1: Oh, thanks for having me, gents. Great to see you, Robert. Hi, great Tony. Acquainted, Great yeah, to see you. Great to meet you.
2: Yeah. So, Tony, uh, as as Brett mentioned a second ago, the metaverse is sort of the big topic of the day. Um, one thing we've noticed is that in the last month or two, as the crypto world has collapsed and prices have plummeted, um, projects are failing all over the place, a lot of Web3 companies are pivoting to metaverse now because metaverse seems like it's a little bit more durable than idea, which is sort of funny because two years ago, uh, you know, it's it was a bit of a joke. Uh, the term, when it was first introduced, you know, by, when when Zuckerberg came out and uh, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook came out and started to talk a lot about the metaverse and his pivot toward the metaverse, it kind of smelled of desperation at the time. Like people were thinking, "Wait a minute, you know, is it really the Facebook brand so toxic that you need to change the name of your company to Meta Platforms, or is there real strategic intent here?" Um, now, it's important, I think, to recognize that. Facebook's not the only company in this space. There's more than a thousand companies that are currently developing metaverse technologies or full-on virtual worlds that we'll call metaverse. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this subject though is that while there's a lot of hoopla around metaverse in the context of web three and decentralized tech, I think it's really important for people who are listening to understand that there's a second trend and the metaverse exists at the intersection of two really, really big trends. Certainly Web3, that's one that gets a lot of attention. And broadly speaking, Web3 is a decentralized architecture for the web. It's meant to replace existing web infrastructure, which happens to be highly centralized, particularly the app layer on top of the uh, web network. Um, So it's the idea of using the blockchain to decentralize internet technology. So that Web3 approach has gotten a lot of hoopla and a lot of hype, and there's been a tremendous amount of investor activity and speculation and so forth, particularly since 2018. But there's another trend, there's a second trend. And funny enough, this one is overlooked and nobody's talking about it. And I find it so astounding that this subject hasn't come up to the forefront because it's way bigger than Web3. And let me offer this just as a parenthetical uh, in case people are listening, and not sure what I'm referring to. If you take all of cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin and Ethereum and all of the 17,000 other cryptocurrencies and all the Web3 stuff and all the other blockchain projects and put them together, The total market capitalization of all of that activity is less than the share price of Apple. It's less than the market cap of Apple. So one stock is bigger than all of that web-free stuff. Not to say it's not gonna be big in the future. Of course it will be. There's a tremendous amount of developer activity there right now, but the point is that it's at an early stage. But the other trend that I'm talking about, the second trend, the one that's overlooked, is way bigger today. And the trend I'm talking about is real-time 3D. Real-time 3D is massive. Uh, it's bigger than the metaverse. It's bigger than games. There are three billion people in it's the world. How is a Tesla
0: autopilot? It's uh, yeah, it. obviously.
2: Yeah. It's exactly right. Spatial computing and mapping and bringing things to IoT. After ten years of investment in IoT. We now have sensors all over the place, you know, embedded in the networks and buildings and industrial processes, those network, those sensors throw off a lot of real-time data and that could be rendered as 3D, not necessarily for entertainment or for social media, but more for industrial uses. So there's a
0: second it's a special component, here. yeah.
2: Yeah, that's right. There's uh, this idea of an industrial metaverse, if you will, or industrial, uh, what they call digital twins, where we build uh, high-fidelity simulations or high-fidelity replicas using real-time data. The key point here, 3D itself is not new. The 3D technology has been around for many, many years, as certainly Tony is going to tell us about. Uh, He drafted some of the original protocols for VRML way back in 1993. Amazing, 30 years ago. Uh, so 3D itself is not necessarily new, but what is new and what's growing fast is real-time 3D. So with that as kind of a rolling preamble, Tony, tell us a little bit about real-time 3D and the significance of it.
1: Yeah, so I mean, it, it's great that you're uh, you're launching into this this way, Robert, because what personally got me excited about doing any of this starting back in around 1993 was my excitement about 3D graphics. And I was working mm-hmm. on some early real-time 3D graphics for data visualization at a scientific uh, computing company back in the Boston area before I moved out to San Francisco with my uh, new wife uh, to make our way in the Wild West and uh, you know see what was going on with the internet. Um, I met this fellow named Mark Pesci and we were both New Englanders. We, we already knew each other from New England, but we reconnected out here in San Francisco. And he's showing me this 3D graphics in real time on a uh, an IBM, or not an IBM, like an Intel 386 chip and whatever. It was, you know, it was a PC clone, uh, whatever that was at the time. And spinning around a chessboard or something, I was like, yeah, I love that 3D graphics. And, and you know, I'm really into coding it. And Mark said, yeah, let's put this on the internet. And I Turned him and said, "Like uh, in Neuromancer, do you mean, or Snow Crash?" <laughs> I'd read these cyberpunk novels of that were published Love in the it. early '90s, Love right? It. And he said, "Yeah, exactly like that." Almost patting me on the head because he'd already drunk all the Silicon Valley Kool Aid and had been living here a few years before me, and that's just how you roll out here in the the West Coast. It's like no idea is too absurd and too crazy. So. I said, and I was kind of telecommuting from this, this job that I was mentally disengaging from anyway. And I just got my first apartment in SF. And I said, why not? So I started prototyping uh, code to do this. And I was working on the 3D graphics part and a little compiler that would load files in that had the model data. And Mark was writing the network code. And these were all based actually on really open source worldwide web libraries. Um, but for me, the excitement was hey, this is the next computer interface. We can use this to render anything i was thinking about it for creative media and advertising possible industrial use cases like you were talking about i don't know designing cars walking through buildings um helping doctors with you know operations i mean that's not my you know that doesn't excite me that much it's great obviously it's an amazing use case but i wouldn't build that personally but the technology to be able to do that amazing less so for gaming i mean i'm not a gamer i'm all uh, as i was mentioning i'm a musician or you were mentioning brett Um, So, you know, when I play video games, it's like Rock Band, (laughs) or in VR, it's like Beat Saber if you have a VR headset. I mean, these are great. I'm not a hardcore gamer, which is a deep dark secret. So I, you know, considering I worked at Unity for six years, for example, but they hired me now for fast forwarding exactly because I was in all these other areas, you know, information, visualization, digital twin. And what we were seeing was the rise of real-time 3D for non-game use cases 25 plus years Mm -hmm. later. And and for those who are listening, Oculus headsets and all this, it was a big boom around that in 2016. And for the people
2: who are listening, if you're not familiar with Unity technologies and Unity software, uh, that's the leading provider of real-time 3D technology. Uh, They're technologies that you use around the world. They have presence in 45 cities around the world and Unity is powering about 70% of the games on your mobile phone right now. So it's a widely adopted 3D technology. So you can consider it a kind of platform, although they don't present it that way. Uh, So, Tony, what were you focused on there, though? You were focused on kind of extending outside of uh, traditional platforms
1: like screen, uh, game game, game
2: devices and computers into XR, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So the thing was, there was this boom on with, Uh, consumer virtual reality, which had gone through a lot of twists and turns. When we go back into the way back, there was an Mm -hmm. attempt to do this in the late 80s and early 90s that was way too early. Uh, tech was not cheap enough. There were all kinds of you know, usability, human factors issues. I think I met you somewhere in that period of time, yeah. just post that bust of VR, consumer VR in the Back when we called
2: it cyber arts. Remember cyber arts? Cyber arts. arts. <laughs>
1: so, you know, these things, again, they go in waves. This is like yeah. decades and decades of waves of trying to make this technology work. Same with tablet computing. We can go down the list of, of the AI, things like this, right? Remember that big so,
2: headset you would wear that came out like this and you could see like a, a flying pterodactyl. You were trying to climb up a Pyramid, it was all wireframed out because uh, yes, it couldn't remember. You're
1: talking, about. I don't know if it was the VPL, I don't think so. You're talking about a different one, right? But yeah. VPL was Jaron Lanier's headset, yeah. So, you know, refugees from that wave were part of the whole uh, thing we got together when we started with VRML. But anyway, coming back to recent past, um, I met the I knew some folks on the management team at Unity already, and then around 2016, they approached me and said, Everyone's using our engine. You know, which you're using to build games for mobile, console, whatever. They're using it now to build experiences for the Oculus or for the Microsoft HoloLens. So these virtual reality, mixed reality headsets. um, Creators needed easy tools to make the content. And arguably, Unity is one of the easier platforms for building this stuff. But creating 3D is pretty intensive you know it's a new set of skills it requires modeling animation programming a combination of skills of te- and teams that can work on this stuff together and unity provided a relatively easy way to get going on that and free to start and an expensive cost of ownership if you were paying for commercial licenses so a lot of vr creators started using the company's tools but the company did not know how to service them as creators they didn't have the right set of product features maybe the right business models the cost you know structures Um, And then creators in the automotive industry were starting to use it. And the licensing was just not, you know, appropriate for them versus game developers. So the company found themselves in this enviable position where everyone was using their tech to build things for virtual and mixed reality um, and, you know, hammer, nail situation. But they really only know how to service the game industry. So they hired me to oversee the expansion into a few of these other industries. And initially, it was film, media and entertainment, automotive. Eventually, uh, creative media and advertising, which is where I spent most of my focus for the almost six years I was there. So started sort of broadly looking at all these industries, quickly found my lane that I was really into, which is I moved over to our advertising team because Unity also has a big in-game mobile ad network and started pushing the boundaries on what you could do with 3D and augmented reality in ad units you would see on a mobile phone. Uh, And that's where I spent most of my time until the last year or so where I really started looking at what we were doing with e-commerce, how people were using Unity's technologies to create interesting e-commerce applications so that I could spin a product around in 3D, maybe use augmented reality to see how it looked in my house or on my face, if it was a pair of uh, sunglasses or an accessory, or on my body with clothing. And there's a lot going on there. We've seen, you know, with Snap and Instagram and these try-ons and try-out situations in AR, there's a lot of interest in that. Or Shopify has got a 3D um, set of apps now, so you can yeah. shop in 3D, spin a product around. So that was really yeah. exciting to me. So for me, it's advertising, creative media, e-commerce, kind of traditionally web use cases, it turns out, and where 3D can add the most value to those. So that, those you know, it's an interesting
2: I, thing. Tops
1: I love, Robert. Well, it's an I interesting topic, right? You know, it's
2: easy for people when they think about 3D, they think of a game because that's how most of us see it. Like I said, there's 3.1 billion people playing games. So that's how most of us think of 3D. I'm a gamer. But what most of us don't think about is what we do on the web. And what we do on the web is we do a lot of search, we do a lot of reading, watching video, uh, we do a lot of shopping. And um, if you look at, say, Amazon's interface, I'm always astounded that Amazon has been so lame or so conservative in terms of updating their interface. it hasn't changed much in 20 years. when are we going to start to have shopping that's like shopping in the real world?
0: It's Ready to play world. alone, like,
1: you know, like yeah. when he's in well, the store. Yeah. That, yeah, I mean, that I is a great topic. A I mean, we're seeing some people trying to do kind of what we call uh, in the business skeuomorphic versions of virtual malls, you know, trying to make things look like a physical mall. It's not clear to me that's the right approach to take to doing this. But mm-hmm. there's something there in terms of making the shopping experience more engaging and immersive. People, I don't remember who first said this, but someone observed rightly, I think, that Amazon solves for buying but not shopping. Like that experience is good; it makes buying efficient, but it takes all of the fun out of shopping. And the marketplace
2: sucks right now. Amazon marketplace. So, a little 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 bit of
1: trivia for you guys: Do you know?
0: Do you guys know where the the title "The Mall" comes from? No. Well, you know, it used to be that you'd go and see a single shop. Right, or a single convenience store, store, but then you could see the mall, at the mall. Oh right? Oh my god! Yeah, Come that's on. true. That's true. Is it true? Yeah. yeah. Love it. Oh, wow. See
1: them all. I believe you. So yeah, I think um, there's something there, and I, I'm really I want to see how this plays out because in a digital environment, I think a lot of the shopping could be serendipitous. It might not be where you thoughtfully saying, I'm going to go into a 3D world in order to shop. Maybe the content comes to you. I mean, none of the, we just have no idea how this is all going to play out. And we won't know just the way we, I don't think could have predicted, say Uber or or pick any of your favorite companies that vaporized some industry or two, Robert. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, we don't know what digital technology can do to transcend time and space when we have a new set of 3D tools at our, at our disposal, right? So again, my passion for 3D and real-time 3D as a media type across the board is what fuels all of this, including the uh, applications, modalities, all the experiences that we're gonna see in a shared metaverse where we're together, present together, potentially in a solitary experience, interacting with things if you're doing training, for example, in a virtual reality headset, but more often than not doing something collaboratively and in real-time, synchronously together at the same time. And this is the potential of this technology. You and talk, so yeah, sorry, go ahead, Brad. No, Tony, no. you
0: talk about VR,
1: but of course the other element
0: is augmented reality. Um, you know, do do you separate the metaverse into a virtual world? And then when you talk about augmented reality, it's sort of a mixed reality world or is is the meta, is versions of the metaverse going to be
1: both, you know, virtual VR and AR based? I'd say more of the latter. I have a very expansionist view of these things. Again, if you if you look at it from my lens, it's always about real-time 3D being the enabling technology for all of these use cases. And all of these use cases have to include being connected and together in real time because our lives are inextricably tied in with the digital now. So there is no distinction to me. And, and also because I'm a software person, um, what matters is the content and the application layers that enable this um, are you know going to be natively 3D and using all the newest real-time 3D technology. Whether let, your let, let's on, click on that. Sensing the real world and integrating it for AR or whether you go into a completely artificial place to escape for whatever reason for entertainment, or for training or learning. It doesn't matter from my point of view, and all these experiences can be connected and potentially experienced in both modes or multiple modes go ahead robert Let,
2: let's let's click on that idea so you you talked about uh the 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 need for standards uh and the need the ability the ability to write natively and so i think a lot of folks might not realize might not be aware that the apps that they use on their phone right now are captive to an ecosystem uh particularly if you're using an iphone if you're using an apple iphone that's not an open ecosystem that is an ecosystem that is controlled top to bottom by apple they exert tremendous amounts of control, including rejecting apps from developers that might be perfectly reasonable apps. You know, they're not like offensive or pornographic or something, just something Apple doesn't want you to publish. And they can do that. Um, You know, in the developer community, this is a lively topic, but outside of that, most folks have no idea. They think they're actually, you know, on the World Wide web when they're using an app, but they're not, they're in a contained ecosystem. So for the people who are listening, who might not be technically savvy, uh, tell us a little bit about your work with HTML5, what that's about, um, the idea of you know liberty from an app store, and maybe the idea that standards can free us uh, from centralization or from domination by these big
1: internet platforms. Oh, what a topic. And as an <laughs> avid and slavish fan to all Apple products, I find myself in a really interesting position because in my opinion, they're the best and they all work together. And as a consumer thereof, it's, it's fabulous. As a developer myself or a creator, I can it can be frustrating. As you said, there are arbitrary gatekeepers who may just decide for one reason or another that I am not allowed to publish a certain experience. Um, that is unfortunate. It's, I guess, the cost of all of the convenience and safety that may come with a platform like that. And or you know the tithe that large companies like Apple decide they're just going to extract from the economies that they serve. It's not it's you know five. however well for it's whatever whatever reason it. you know for whatever reason I was going to say vig, but that's a little bit like you yeah, know gangster. yeah well no
2: it's more than a tithe which is ten yeah. percent. Apple takes a whopping thirty percent. Oh and by the way, Facebook came out recently to talk about their metaverse fees for stuff that people create. They're going to take forty eight percent. Wow. So yeah, these that are... shit's
1: not going to fly. I hope we're uh, all yeah, right. Yeah exactly. That, there there's no terrible way. economics yeah. for developers, yeah. yeah, terrible economics for uh, developers. So I, I think we'll probably get to a little bit of the Web three part of this conversation in a minute. But before we just jump off the precipice on that stuff, Robert, yeah. I think, yeah, the, the, the open web always w- yeah. was born of this promise that anyone could publish. I mean, if you just go right. back to what made the web work, it was a few things. It was I all I needed was a text editor. I write a little text, create a few tags and then Someone gave me a really cheap web server, you know, easy easy to access an ISP stuff. The economics of this was so easy that mom, pop, anyone, you want to publish your recipes, you want to slap up a simple store. The cost of doing that, the activation energy to do it was small. The tools were basically free or really inexpensive. And hell, if I liked a web page, I could even, you know, view source and copy paste. So the sharing and remixing was amazing. We need to get back to that. And for the meta- and
2: that's like right. circa 1996 to 1998, right? And then we have yeah. this sort of crash. And after the crash, what emerges are these centralized
1: platforms. Not
2: overnight, yeah. but gradually.
1: Yeah. Right. And by and the way, we opted into them. Like we as
2: We, right? we, we as use users, yeah, we chose that. We chose that. Right.
1: But interestingly and ironically, they are all built on the back of open standards like HTML5. All of right. that content is coming from that. It's not coming from using one company's set of tools. It never would have scaled up, which I think we're gonna get to when we talk about where the metaverse needs to go. Mm -hmm. This never would have scaled up without some basic simple tools and those open standards and interoperable pieces of technology. And you wrote the book on on 3D coding for HTML5. I did, I wrote a couple of books on uh, WebGL, which is 3D rendering technology for in your browser. Um, it's a bit long in the tooth now. I mean, I love it. I'm a big fan of the tech. And it was a great way to unleash a lot of 3D creation that anybody mm-hmm. could experience inside an HTML5 capable browser. But now we're getting to a place where we need, probably need some upgrade in the tech beyond what we have in uh, you know browsers today and in WebGL. But it's given a lot of folks uh, on the web training wheels for creating 3D content, which is great. And I think we'll be able to start seeing uh, an influx of professional 3D creators and or, you know, sort of prosumer 3D creators who use these other tools, blenders, mm-hmm. game engines like Unity, yeah. starting to get uh, comfortable publishing for the web as well as we move into this open metaverse. I, I'm
0: I'm really interested, before we get a break, Rob,
1: I'm really interested in how this
0: might develop operating systems, right? Particularly with the uh, head-mounted displays, you know, AR glasses. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about the fact that in with AR glasses, you'd be able to project your laptop, you know, on, on onto your field of view using, you know, like a laptop screen. But then, um, you know, as you've sort of rightly pointed out, well, you don't have to use that sort of proxy design template, because you've now got this virtual space you can work with. So you, you could um, do that quite differently, you know, in a 3D operating system. But um, yeah, we're still, we're still thinking, you know, um, in, in some limited terms, I guess, about the, that potential. It's interesting
2: it's true i mean this this part of the conversation has mostly been about the foundational elements that are necessary to create these experiences and to get them to run on various devices uh, so that everybody can get access to them nobody wants to build a metaverse that only works in one device i think maybe maybe mark zuckerberg does i don't know um but uh but thanks tony for taking us on that quick tour 30 years of uh, 3d development and open standards and so forth um Let's take a break now, and then when we come back, we'll talk about how all of this sets the stage for an open metaverse versus a closed metaverse. You're listening to The Futurists. I'm Rob Terzik. My co-host is Brett King, and our guest this week is Tony Parisi. He's a metaverse OG in the sense that he's one of the very earliest pioneers of this technology A lot of folks don't realize it, but this is not the first time in history we've been talking about metaverses. The topic keeps coming up once uh, again and again. And we're going to get deeper into it after the break. So hang tight. We'll see you in just a second.
0: Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King.
2: And I'm Jason Henriks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm JP Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. Hey there, welcome back. You're listening to The Futurists. I'm Rob Churczyk with my co-host, Brett King. And our guest this week is Tony Parisi. Tony's going to talk to us all about the metaverse, a topic that we seem to have been hearing an awful lot about in recent months. And just to put it in perspective, I've seen research now from Bernstein, J.P. Morgan, Citibank, and other big financial institutions. And all that research has one common refrain, It's not a question of if they're gonna build a metaverse. It's a question of when. It's a certainty that 3D immersive interfaces and spatial computing are coming because it's already on the tech roadmap. Every major tech company is invested in this. Every hardware company is invested in it. And for those who are interested, the size and scope of this opportunity is absolutely massive. I just read research yesterday that says that in China and the US, each of those two markets alone could account for eight to $13 trillion of economic activity. So it's a great, big, juicy target. No surprise then that everybody in the tech industry is racing after it as fast as they can. Tony, give me your perspective on what's happening with the metaverse right now.
1: I love those numbers. So yeah, (laughs) adjusting for inflation, I don't know how much that's really gonna be worth in the next decade, but that's a different podcast, isn't it? Hey guys, Um, great to be back. Look, um, yeah, it's big. All of this technology is getting cheaper by the minute in terms of real-time 3D graphics in everybody's hands, supercomputer power in our pockets, all getting connected up through faster networks, all getting driven by so many forces in the economy and in society and in the world in general, to get us to a place a few years down the line where our primary interface to information is going to be spatial and experienced through either VR, Or augmented and mixed reality headsets are still on flat screens, but predominantly with 3D interaction, and that's exciting. And so the questions are, you know, how big? I mean, those numbers could be off by an order of magnitude either way, and still be incredible, I think. Um, But how we, how does that get built? That's what's interesting. You know, what's interesting scale. A lot of folks don't realize
2: that this phone is already capable of a lot more than they realize. Just this thing on the back of the phone, I'm, I'm holding up an Apple iPhone, the newest version of the iPhone Max the or whatever Three cameras. Three cameras. What are the three cameras for? Tell us about spatial computing.
1: Well, you got one that's just doing your RGB and you got two for depth, right? So this is the thing. And with that depth, you actually can create a scanned version of a room or a space you're pointing at. So yeah, so these newer generations of iPhones can effectively capture the entire world.
2: OK, so when I'm taking a photograph of the Grand Canyon, is it actually scanning depth in that shot as well? Is it like mapping it or when I take a picture of my house, am I am I sort of secretly mapping it for, for Apple?
1: Well, I don't think so, because I think you actually have to opt into all that. You tell me, Robert, because um, I haven't actually done that on the newer iPhones, but they're Apple's pretty good about security. So I don't think mm-hmm. you're doing anything like room scanning without, you know, opting in for that. Okay. So, But when you do, those cameras are all turned on. Um, or maybe that depth information stored, but cannot be shared with anybody else. We'd have to go check terms of service, honestly. I don't know on that one, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. you know, if anybody's guarding your privacy on that stuff, Apple does the best at all that. You okay, but the takeaway there is that your phone- things, but that's They're really good at that stuff. Okay, but the takeaway there is your phone, whether it's Apple or Samsung
2: or any other hardware, it already has three cameras, uh, and that means it's already capable of a spatial computing experience. And inside the phone, there's also the capability of rendering that. I think a lot of folks don't realize that because they think we have to like wait until there's a headset that we can wear. And so then you hear, whenever you bring that up, people go, Google Glass didn't work. It's not going to work. And I think this is just all the wrong way to think about this opportunity because it's all backward looking. It's all like focused on the past. Uh, For sure, hardware gets cheaper, faster, and better every single year. But clearly Apple's approach, I can't speak to other companies, but clearly Apple's approach is that the headset, whenever it arrives is gonna be a peripheral to the smartphone because that's their stronghold. That's their moneymaker. That's what they're gonna reinforce. And they've already shown us with Apple Watch and AirPods that they're quite capable of selling accessories that are fashion devices, making them cool enough for mass market consumption and building a robust business there. People don't realize how big that business is. AirPods is about a $25 billion business for Apple right now. And, um, and, and they, uh, they're doing something similar with watches. You know, Apple now sells more Apple watches than all of Switzerland uh, in terms of revenue. And, and that is an
0: enormous achievement in just about five years. So, when when uh, Apple first came out with the watch, that would have been a ridiculous statement to make, wouldn't it?
1: Right. That, oh, people laughed. I remember. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. Jean-Claude BVA, who's one of the heads of LMVH, uh, he supervises the watches for them, including like Tag Heuer and other great brands for that fashion label. He came out, he was openly dismissive. He said, oh, this is terrible. It looks like it was done by a third year d- design student who didn't pass his course. He was very, very dismissive of it. And in the first year, the numbers weren't very good because the first generation of hardware is always kind of disappointing. What people don't realize is by year three, Apple was second only to Rolex. By year four, Apple surpassed Rolex in terms of revenue on watches. And by year five, Apple outstole all of Switzerland in terms of watches. They've absolutely crushed the watch industry. But now today, Apple is considered to be the world's largest seller of jewelry. Get this, because they sell watches and ear pods. So they sell these accessories that we wear like jewelry. They don't seem like jewelry. To us That's interesting. Too, oh,
1: right? Robert, there goes another industry. Yeah, you another it. vaporized yeah, industry. Getting vaporized again. Yeah, if you didn't, um, if you didn't <laughs> have your diamonds in your earpods,
0: then yeah. Oh, my goodness. But, but
2: you can do an yeah. augmented reality experience on your phone right now. Your phone, the last Absolutely. three generations of phone have been Absolutely. perfectly capable of this. So talk to us a little bit about what's available today. I mean, Pokemon Go is a great example of you know, conditioning hundreds of millions of people to the idea that you can actually play a game in space around you.
1: Yeah, of course. And so uh, as we've already kind of touched on, the the phone can be used to scan, to capture an environment, but it can also just be as those cameras in this technology we already have in our pockets can also be just used to track. So you're moving the phone around and it has a sense of what's going on in the environment. And then you can use that tracking to overlay digital information. So for example, I could point my phone in my living room and see how a piece of furniture looks in that living room if I'm shopping for it. Mm -hmm. And we've seen plenty of demonstrations of that now. Ikea has an app that does that. Uh, Shopify-enabled stores can do this. Uh, Unity's uh, been doing some stuff, but we were doing it with advertising. uh, You can try on your Warby Parker glasses. You can try on your Warby Parker glasses, makeup with YouTube, all of these things enabled by either the front or back-facing camera on your phone and a little bit of computer vision software technology. So there's an AI component to this too. I mean, this is all powered by machine learning, uh, mm-hmm. That drives these computer vision algorithms. And so, yeah, when they think when people think about uh, the metaverse, they're often thinking about, yeah, this pure immersion in this artificial world. But so many of these use cases are going to be happening with this mixed reality or augmented reality of, of the type that we're talking about already. That's right. super exciting.
2: We've talked a lot about the phone, but, but bear in mind, you know, before the pandemic already, some of the big fashion labels were experimenting with smart mirrors, which effectively were just a big smartphone in a, in a dressing room. But in the smart mirror, you could try on a garment in the store and then click, touch the mirror, like a touch screen right, right. to select different colors of that garment, which is a really cool idea, right? So it's like, I don't want to try on six of the same item. I have this one, this is the size that fits me. Now show it to me in green, you know, show it to me in blue. And you can do that, uh, I, th- I think that's kind of magical for people, and this is the essence of marketing in the digital era, is it's like a magic trick. You know, like you amaze people with this, and and there's a huge amazement or magic element, I think, in AR when it works well. Absolutely. Okay, so, so those are some of the use cases. We're talking about devices that we're kind of extending out of like the Apple domain, which we're all fanboys of, so we'll talk about that all day long. Um, But I think we should probably get to this notion then of open and closed ecosystems and open and closed metaverses. Um, Everybody thinks they know what those things are, but let's talk a little bit about that so that people really understand what's at stake here. Uh, What happens when a developer or community are locked into a single platform? There's a high switching cost. It makes it hard for them to migrate out to another platform. You're kind of existing at the whim of that platform owner. If you have an active group on Facebook right now, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You're trying to figure out how to migrate that group off of that platform. So tell me about the race to build closed ecosystems or Lamina One's mission to build an open ecosystem.
1: Or just one other example, maybe you're an avid Twitter user like myself, and you're worried about the company's direction and leadership in the near future, and thinking about that investment you've made in that user base, right? Um, But understood, yeah, I mean, we've talked a little bit about the potential creator frustration of having gatekeepers Mm -hmm. say what you can publish and not. Uh, If we'd been in the world of Web1, Web1 would have not taken off if there were those kind of gatekeepers back then. If we're old enough to remember, there were those original proprietary information services that were Walled Gardens, AOL, Prodigy, CompuServe. They gave us the dial-up access. They gave us the CD-ROM with the software. And they gave us that interface to actually you know, publish and communicate. And that got a lot of people online. But the web did not explode to global scale until it was completely opened up. And I think we're going to see the same thing as we get to the next stage of the metaverse. What we're seeing now in these proprietary closed systems that are notable in the metaverse and pick your favorite example, Fortnite, uh, where it's not just a game, but it's a community and sand, you know, sandbox creation system and a, a community platform. Roblox would be another one. Um, these are the prototype proof points for an open metaverse where anybody can publish content like that. Obviously this is production intensive. Some of these things are gonna have budgetary restrictions and whatnot, but I think what we're going to see is an opening up and a creator-driven system open to all more like what Second Life was doing 20 years ago if anyone remembers that virtual world Second Life though they weren't open they had very flexible tools it was very inexpensive and, pe- and they were very it was a very good platform for self-expression and commerce yeah. they had a working economy in there I still want to get Yeah, to the linden dollars linden right. dollars right they pioneered a lot of this stuff Also inspired, Philip was also inspired by Snow Crash, by the way, and then my work and Mark's work before him. Um, And I think it's, I don't think it's visually necessarily going to be like that. And the features will be different. But the idea is that anybody can get their own zone, space, plot of land, whatever you want to call it, build a community with free Mm -hmm. and open tools. And anybody can join that if the people who built that want them to be there, will allow them to be there. And it's not going to be some platform provider telling them that it's appropriate or not to have that. Oh, you know, you want to build some zone in the metaverse to train people on how to do ninja sword fighting. Oh, we don't like that because it's like, I don't know, it's not child safe. I'm just making a random example up, but nobody should be the judge of that, uh, you know, within the confines of the law and, uh, you know, other aspects that are beyond the scope of this discussion. But certainly no platform provider should be just deciding what is appropriate there and limiting people's ability to create and publish. Although
2: we live in a time where even Twitter is deciding what's appropriate to publish on their platform. And so, you know, this is a very live issue uh, with respect to the metaverse. It's not just writing a statement or, you know, a tweet. You're talking about building stuff. Uh, and we're, one thing that that Second Life absolutely got right, and I think some of the current metaverses are not getting right, is that they allowed people freedom, total freedom to create whatever they thought was appropriate. Um, You know, it's some people's idea of a libertarian paradise because if you wanna go around looking like a giant plush toy, you can do that. You can do that, that's available to you if you want that. Um, Whereas you've seen, we've all seen other metaverses today that give you these kind of avatars that are kind of prescriptive uh, in the sense that you can pick your skin tone and your hairstyle, but you can't turn yourself into a giant plush bunny rabbit if that's what you wanted to do. And why not? it's a different world. Uh, why aren't we trying on different personas uh, after all? You know, like why should we have to be slavishly recreating re- the world that exists in the virtual? Uh, Absolutely. So that's one yeah. aspect of freedom. Yeah. But there's a second aspect of freedom, which is that if I create something in a world, I'd like to have the ability to bring that with me if I go to a different world. Right. Whether digital that's digital
0: assets, capital, uh, yeah, yeah. if you create if you create space, I understand buying real estate in a mm-hmm. in a platform may require certain elements where you you know you you are locked into a, a certain environment but your avatar your characteristics your your virtual clothes your your virtual, tools your artwork yeah, the exactly. creative stuff that you make
2: so here's an interesting question uh is your metaverse one that allows you to own stuff what is the concept of ownership and i think it's going to become a very lively discussion because right now there isn't any um people say these nice things about it some metaverses and interoperable. Metaverses.
0: Yeah, well, that's interoperable where it comes. You're leading yeah, yeah. right
2: to the point. That's exactly it. And this is a key point about what uh, what Tony's working on now. Uh, this this idea that if you want to take it with you, then the metaverses have to be interoperable. Now that term is cumbersome. What we mean by that is that um, software that's written for one platform works on another platform. And it's why, um, you know, the lack of interoperability is why sometimes you can't get a PlayStation game on the Xbox, for instance, because those worlds are not necessarily interoperable. Uh, There's a lot of geeky stuff. It has a lot to do with standards, a lot to do with the stuff we're talking about before the break. The net result, though, is that it imposes constraints on users. It's going to shrink community. It's going to shrink free speech, and it's going to impose a real burden on people that want to switch out of one platform and go to another because you're kind of locked in. Uh, And that's by design. Platform Like you are with Apple versus Android today, right? You got it. And it's, you know, if you want to put an Android app on Apple, you got to port the thing over, non-trivial task there, right? And you got to submit it to the Apple store and so forth. So, Tony, talk to us a little bit about Lamina One and this vision of an open, interoperable, standards-based platform Blockchain that enables the, the transactions that I described—that you can port stuff from one world to another. So
1: Lamina One is a new venture. I just joined up as the chief strategy officer recently. It was founded by Peter Visenis, who is a blockchain uh, pioneer, uh, founder of the first Bitcoin, the Bitcoin Foundation, one of the first organizations dedicated to you know education and evangelism around these new blockchain technologies. And uh, something of a cryptographic technology expert, which I am not, in fact, I break into a cold sweat when I think about those kind of cryptography algorithms that are required to power uh, currency and, and NFTs. So thankfully there's other people around to do that. And Neil Stevenson, the author who wrote Snow Crash- The originator of the word The metaverse. originator of the word metaverse, exactly, Brett. Not, but, but check this out. In Snow Crash, it, which was published in 1992, Neil predicted a future internet where we were interfacing with it using virtual reality hardware. So fair guess, that was that was cool. And inspired so many of us to do our spatial computing work. But he also predicted a future where late stage capitalism was showing signs of decline. And there was a rise of this sort of anarcho-feudalist structures to take its place. And cryptocurrency, all in that one novel. And he continued the cryptocurrency thread through Diamond Age, the next novel. Um, And then ultimately, Cryptonomicon, which uh, in no small way inspired Bitcoin and the original crypto gangs that built this stuff a decade ago now. So this is fascinating. We're kind of living in Neil's world. So imagine my delight when I first uh, finally met him in person recently. Well, over Zoom because that's our lives right now. Um, And we talked. uh, It was a thirty-minute conversation that ended up being a ninety-minute conversation. It was thrilling. And by the end, we concluded that we just we kind of have Very a moral cool. imperative right now to build an open metaverse. There is so much at stake. When we see what happened in Web2 and the consolidation of platform power, we believe that it's on us to create a set of initial conditions and inter- interoperable pieces to do what we can to foster the creation of an open metaverse. And we've touched on the whys of the open metaverse, more creator choice, more consumer choice, more abilities for the creators to actually get paid fairly. Again, you mentioned the take rate on some of these platforms, Robert, it's absurd right now, up to 50% in some of these systems, that's not gonna fly. And Robert, you know my background on this as a musician, I started looking at Web3 as a musician a year ago thinking, okay, I have a new music project. I'm a nobody in that industry. How am I going to publish this? Am I going to do all this work, pay my own money to make an album, which I'm doing now, and then go pay more money so I can get discovered on Spotify, all to make $3,000 for a million streams? No way. So I started working with a lot of music creators and getting to know them and their single NFT drops, they're making what they would make on millions of streams. And and if they can connect with a few thousand fans, they can actually make a living now. So, So Neil's Big, uh, one of his big things is let's make sure creators get paid. And I couldn't agree more. And then there's one final element to this besides being able to scale up and provide the most choice, which is that we want this to be carbon negative, which is a tall ask. So we're not, I mean, crypto's got its hands full just to get to carbon neutral. And while, you know, and we're just getting started as Lemon, so I can't describe the whole strategy for that. But Mm -hmm. we're putting a stake in the ground and saying, as people are operating nodes in this network, they are actually, there is carbon credit credit stuff happening so that we are at least starting to participate in carbon credit economies. And we'll go beyond that over time to even more aggressive techniques. But You know, I'm not an expert on how these technologies work, so it wouldn't be... Mm -hmm. It wouldn't be suitable for me to go into the details on this, and maybe this is something uh, that if Yeah, you but no, but, it, so but for the benefit of the about.
2: listeners, the big
1: issue with b-
2: both Bitcoin and Ethereum has been the absolutely grotesque computational cost of operating a consensus network yeah. on a blockchain. And because for those who don't know what of that work means,
1: algorithms, yes,
2: yeah, for those who don't know what that means, what proof of work means is that each computer on the network has to run the exact same computational problem and arrive at the exact same conclusion in order to attain consensus. You have to do that. If you want to decentralize system. Otherwise, in a centralized system, it's easy. You run the computation once. On that's computer. it. That's the record. But if you want to decentralize, then all the machines have to do the same work. So if there's thousands of machines, it's thousands of times more computational energy it's going to be consumed, which is why Bitcoin is currently consuming as much energy as the country of Denmark, which is kind of obscene uh, for a currency that nobody actually uses to buy anything. So that's a fair mm. criticism. Now, that's not an accident. People say, oh, that's a bug in the code. No, it's not. In a decentralized world, that's by design, that's that's security. Uh, the way Vitalik Buterin puts it, uh, you can optimize for two of three things, but you can't get all three. You can have security, scalability, and decentralization. So if you want decentralization, you're going to give up some scalability. Now today, there's a lot of new thinking on this subject, because now we're in you know third and fourth generation blockchains where people are starting to say, actually, we probably can get closer to all three of those things. And also this notion of like absolute decentralization is a little bit of a religious war it um, is and then sure. secondly, you know, this this notion that like the only way to secure it is to like run this on every single node. Well, there's all kinds of
1: experimentation going on with side chains, but, layer two but solutions. The issue side chains, but also, you know, proven yeah. state consensus algorithms, which are much more friendly on compute resources. Yeah. They're basically uh, yeah. ne- not negligible, but, you know, much lower resource load. Nothing like the obscene amount that we're talking about for Bitcoin. And that's where the industry is today. And I think that's only just going to get better. And again, we're taking that extra step further and saying, can we devote some of the network resources to actually uh, doing what we can, You know, some of that economy to eventually pull carbon out of the atmosphere? But we'll start with making sure people pollute less. All right. All right. Let's talk about the benefits for the users of the community. Uh, so
2: we've heard almost the same thing from Decentraland, from the people at Engine. The people that are creating uh, sandbox and actually even you know uh, Facebook's uh, Facebook Horizon, they're saying open, interoperable, everybody can own the stuff they create. You can own your own avatar. Is that true? Is that the same? Are you doing something different?
1: So first of all, Lamina One's not going to do all of this. So Mm -hmm. what we're creating is a blockchain designed from the ground up to handle. What we consider to be unique needs for the spatial version of the metaverse. I mean, a lot of these Web three people are saying metaverse right now, um, but what they're doing is trading bitmaps as NFTs, right? There, this was designed for very simple, you know, it's for transactions and very simple assets, and we're seeing all kinds of shortcomings on performance, scalability, uh, you know, just transactions. It, it's throughput. not great transaction yeah. speed and throughput. So, if you think about this from first principles of we're building virtual worlds that have a lot of people in them, a lot of 3D content, lots of objects, rich environments that need to get rendered, Rendered. Uh, potentially these virtual uh, land systems where people want to say, I'm building a, a something and I'm going to let people put zones inside my world that, you know, all of these things need features that can work with performance and scalability. And so... We are building a blockchain to support that. It's forked off another blockchain called Avalanche, which has already proven to have high transaction throughput and all these proof of stake you know, benefits that we already talked about. But we anticipate we're going to have more functional requirements because, again, we're going to build virtual worlds and a universe of them on the backs of a blockchain like that. We're so, also going to supply a handful of pieces uh, of ecosystem technology to un- you know, tools, basic starter tools to unlock this decentralized game services, because it's not just about the blockchain. It's about streaming the assets. It's about multiplayer messaging, all these things you need to do in a real uh, uh, MMO or game or metaverse environment, virtual world environment. And we're not going to build all those pieces. And we're probably going to work with lots of industry partners and open standards groups to create the specs so that lots of people can build all these pieces together because no one company is going to be able to build on this.
2: Yeah. So if you're interested and you're listening and you're, you care a lot about this and you're working on, say, open standards for the metaverse, then Tony's the guy to reach.
0: Absolutely. Um, before we get into some long-visioning future stuff to wrap up the show, I just want to ask you one, one point in respect to your comments there is, um, you know, Obviously, I get the application of blockchain in terms of digital asset infrastructure. I, I think that makes total sense. Having as, digital assets can move from one virtual world to another. The uh, decentralized blockchain, um, you know, uh, to to record n- not only the ownership of that and and licensing around that, but um, you know, have the portability. I think is key. But on the other side of it. Creating really compelling virtual worlds is going to take a ton of compute power, you know, you know, advanced graphic cards, maybe edge computing and so forth. How can that be centralized? Isn't by nature the computing demands of it going to require I mean decentralized? Isn't by nature the computing requirements of these virtual worlds going to require some centralization?
1: I mean, that's a fascinating topic. you don't really decentralize you know one gpu but you can create clusters of those and distribute rendering for example my friend Jules Zerbach does that at Otoy and right? he's even got the render token to do that. You can distribute him on the show. Yeah. yeah. You're going to have him on the show or have you already? For sure. Yeah. Otoy no, is great. One of the he's a genius. Yeah. yeah. It's, I love it's Jules.
2: Decentralized rendering. It's such a brilliant yeah. idea and they're all fully oversubscribed. Like there's a ton of interest. It's one of the great yeah. examples of decentralized platforms.
1: Yeah. Now that's not real time, but that's fine because you know what you're doing is instead of a render farm that would take overnight to do this, you're distributing, you know, this is the way Hollywood does a lot of this. Um, you're getting a uh, distributed network of people sharing that load. And so things will still happen faster and cheaper. Um, And you can abstract these kind of ideas to distributed network computing. I'm an advisor, a company called Croquet, founded by David Smith, the guy who created Virtus VR. I don't know if you remember David at all, Robert. So he's been in this same world for about 30 years as well. And yeah, and he's got this system called Croquet that's basically distributed network layer. So you and I will see the same simulation and it's got it working pretty well over the web. So we're going to see services like that come up that just basically what it means, Brett, is it's not like everyone will have to have this running on their laptop necessarily or on their phone. Pieces will run on the phone, like maybe the rendering will be local right. on your mobile device, but there will be thousands of network operators offering compute resources, offering system services, all connected up. So in theory, it is decentralizable. In practice, you know, we're going to find out where the hard problems are going to be and we're going to start solving them as an industry. We don't have all the answers yet. But you know, there is also many decades now, there are many decades of experience on distributed simulation, cloud rendering, and all these other fundamental technologies. So we're not really starting from scratch. It's not theoretical white paper land. We're going to start bringing these to bear soon and then mm-hmm. the other real thing and I'll, I'll just finish this answer up not to be long-winded brett is that it's not clear we have to have millions of people in one virtual world at a time which is what you know it's there's this right, hobgoblin right. that a lot of people on the virtual world side will trot out and say if it doesn't scale to a million people in this world that i'm in it's not you know a truly scalable solution but right. Go to a concert, you don't interact with a million people. You know, you interact with three or four, and then there's a crowd around you that's sort of this vague murmuring mess, and then there's the band on stage. (laughs) I mean, I think that's how virtual worlds are going to take shape as well, or shopping, or whatever. You're never going to see the million people at once. So it's just a bit of a bugbear, in my my opinion. So no, I get it. I think I think we've got the foundation for a lot of great distributed open technology to do 3D today.
0: Great Great answer. answer.
2: So, so Tony, you've talked a little bit uh, in your blog, which, by the way, if you haven't looked at Tony's Medium blog, it's Tony Parisi on Medium. He writes brilliantly about his views, 30-year perspective on the metaverse. You wrote about the third wave, um, and your point was, hey, folks, this is not the first rodeo. People have been trying to solve these problems for a mighty long time. Tell us about what you have learned over the last 30 years and what you look forward to in the next 30 years.
1: What I've learned in the last 30 is definitely the the I, I'll have to paraphrase what Bill Gates said. And I think, you know, the quote, um, you accomplish a lot less than you think you you're going to in a three year time frame. But what you can do in a decade is unbelievable. And I'm just totally paraphrasing him here. Um, these things tend to roll out and take a little longer than we think. Uh, in, in the case of real time 3D for the Internet. That has been a 30 year journey so far. So we're definitely jumping the gun. Uh, I've also learned that there's no solving for some folks who are gonna have a manic defense against change, that you know, the status quo is a real thing. And I think you, you guys both know this really well, Absolutely. Um, and you just need to compartmentalize it. I've learned that there's really no way to talk people out of it. One day folks will wake up and see that new world that they were not seeing. And, i'll never get on facebook yeah. <laughs> yes you know or the electric guitar is a fad that would be you know something my dad said he was a professional pianist you know he would say that in the 50s and 60s that's right? funny yeah uh or the, no one will ever own a personal computer the ibm yeah. exec saying that yeah. right so but I mean, there's just where some do you see this going Never see that and you can't yeah, you what, to what talk excites about it. you what excites yeah. you about the future
0: what what inspires you to get up every morning. And, and you know, you're like, like the rest of us as futurists, we're in a hurry to get to the future because of the promise it provides. What, what excites you about that future?
1: Yeah, we, we will definitely try no future before it's time at this point. We've learned that lesson. It's going to come when it comes. Here's what excites me. Um, well, first of all, before I start with that, here's what's not scaring me. We're not going to build the matrix. We're not going to build what Ready Player One. People are fully freaked out that we're going to be trapped in, in a world of uh, quest devices, and I don't know, are very bloodstream, you know, hooked into it or something. It's not going to go down that way. And you know, even even the folks who are building devices that are potentially or systems that are potentially addictive, they don't start that way. I mean, I think there's very few people in the world that get up in the morning and say, "How can I make the world a shittier place?" You know, what can I do to like perpetrate massive you. No. So, I mean, clearly there are folks who don't care, you know, what, what happens in the wake of their ac- actions, but that's a different story. So I think in the balance, what excites me is I'm very optimistic that this technology is going to, A, solve the things in front of us that we desperately need to solve for right now. And I'd say in my personal order, climate is number one. And then two, uh, the erosion of trust in institutions worldwide, needs to get restored somehow. So I'm hoping that we have a new set of communication tools to start bridging that gap and we get out the other end of what's clearly a geopolitical global crisis time. Um, and I think these tools have the possibility to help with both of those in the near term. Then beyond that, I don't know where we will be, Robert. I don't track where space tech's gonna be in 30 years, but you know, to me, this is all on that long vision of preservation of knowledge uh, distribution of information and, and facilitating communication as we become transhuman or spacefaring or whatever that next thing is that feels like it may pop even in my our lifetimes even us being middle-aged at this point we'll see um and so we have new tools for understanding we have new tools for communication so that is what gets me out of bed every day not uh not what i consider to be still something i'm on which is a holy crusade to prevent a closed metaverse i i think That's something I'm vigilant about, but what drives me is the future possibilities.
2: Very cool. I think sometimes people may not make the connection to those robotic systems. And when you talk about space, it's worth pointing out to people that most deep space exploration right now, actually all of it is being done by robotic systems. And we're sending people, humans up to the space. The sole
0: inhabitants of Mars are, are, are robots at the moment. That's right. And so you can think of those robotic
2: systems as an extension of human consciousness off this planet. And the way we're going to deal with those robots is three D simulations. So there will be digital twins for all those systems. The, the original three D digital twin was developed by NASA for the Voyager spacecraft that are, you know, circling around in Saturn or wherever the heck they are in the solar system right They're now. They're in the
0: I O T cloud now, dude. They're, they've left the uh, wow. the heliosphere. Amazing.
2: But the way you monitor that system here on the ground is you've got a 3D model, and that is a real-time model uh, that is rendered in 3D. So that makes it a digital twin, and it fits perfectly into uh, what we've been describing this whole time. There's just a lot of use cases for this stuff.
1: Yeah, but bring Uh, it back to Earth, and a lot of these technologies and techniques can make our cities safer and smarter, Mm -hmm. uh, make us more energy efficient. Uh, get us to a place maybe where we're making less stuff and putting it in fewer boxes and putting it on fewer planes to ship around. And these are all to the good as well. And and, and so, it, yeah, it isn't just about XR or distributed computing. It's also about robotics, AI, uh, new exactly. generations of network and all that. I mean, it's really hard to, to That's separate. That's how both save the world.
0: I mean, robots will see the world using 3D tech. You yeah, know? absolutely. Right. Well, it's been a fantastic show. Tony, thank you. Um, obviously, we want to hear more about Lamina One when the time is right. Hopefully, we'll get Neil on as well. Um, but uh, you know, continue to keep us informed on that super exciting stuff. And um, definitely, um, the other thing I think is once Apple does announce what they're doing with their AR glasses, it'd be it'd be great to have you back on, maybe with Robert Scoble or someone like that, talking about the implications of all of that. So uh, uh, watch out for that. But um, yeah, very keen to continue this conversation. Thanks for. Thanks for being on. How can people find out more about what you're doing and and more and get in touch with you?
1: Yeah, so you can come to my Medium blog at sign Tony Parisi on Medium. My Twitter at sign Ara Deluxe A U R A D E L U X E. Those are my main entry points in the metaverse right now. Uh, This new company is called Lamina One L A M I N A One. That's the number dot com. Uh, Those that's how you can find me and in the greater metaverse
0: fantastic well that's it for another week of the futurist podcast this episode was produced by our US-based production team that includes uh, Lizbeth Severins, a producer, audio engineer Kevin Hersham, social media support from Carlo Navarra and Sylvie Johnson. If you liked uh, the futurist this week, as with every week, you know, tweet us out, post it on LinkedIn or whatever it is your so your favorite social media uh, platform is. Leave us a review on iTunes, podcast, Google Podcast, Facebook, wherever it is that you listen to the show, because that helps other people find the futurists and in turn that helps us build audience that helps us get sponsorship so we can continue to do this um even though robert and i robert and i love this and we'd probably do it for free anyway you know there are some costs involved but um thanks for uh, joining us on the futurist this week and rob and i will see you in the future in the future
2: well that's it for the futurists this week if you like the show we sure hope you did Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community and don't forget to leave us a five-star review that really helps other people find the show and you can ping us anytime on instagram and twitter at at futurist podcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask thanks for joining and as always
1: we'll see you in the future